Let's uh, bow before the Lord as we open up God's word together. Our Father, we do ask that you would please bless our time in your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself, and that we have access to it in our language, that we might know and understand you and the gospel that you came to bring. I pray that you would please humble our hearts, open our ears, and instruct our minds this morning that we might live as you have called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you know, Jesus, as he stepped upon this earth, he came declaring himself to be the true representative of God. He was the one who spoke for the Father. He said, I do nothing of my own authority. I do only that which I've been given by the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only share what and teach what the Father has given me to say. And yet this claim of speaking for God was in direct competition with the religious leaders of that day, of the first century Israel. They were the ones, up until Jesus showed up, he was the one, they were the ones who taught from the Bible. They were the ones that the people would go to to hear what does God have to say. And not that they were coming up with new revelation, but they were the ones who interpreted God's word and taught the people on how to live and how to worship. Now you would think that if you have Jesus, the Jewish carpenter Messiah, and you have the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, that you would think that their message would be relatively the same. I mean, they're, they're worshiping the same God, the one revealed as Yahweh of the Old Testament. They're going from the same scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it today. And so with the same Bible, the same God, supposedly the same faith, they should have the same message, right? But it wasn't the same. It resulted in a showdown between these religious leaders who held the power and held the sway over the populace religiously and spiritually and with Jesus who threatened that power by his presence and his teaching. For the last four years, we as a church have been going through the gospel of Luke. We've been tracking our way through this book and I want to remind us this morning as we step back into this book this morning, just the high level overview of the contours of the book of Luke to jog our memories. Many moons ago, we covered Luke's, Luke 1 and 2, in which we looked at the birth of Jesus and his forerunner, that is, John the Baptist, the, known as the infancy narratives there in Luke 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3 and into the middle part of chapter 4, 4 verse 13, was preparation for Jesus' ministry. This is where John the Baptist came on the scene and began calling people to repentance in preparation for the Messiah who would come after him. Jesus then becomes is baptized. He's then taken out into the wilderness and tested by Satan, by God, through the temptation of Satan. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus begins his public ministry. And he goes throughout Galilee. And so in chapter 4, verse 14, through Luke 9, verse 50, is known as his Galilean ministry, his great Galilean ministry. Galilee being the northern part of Israel, he traveled all over that northern part of the country as he proclaimed himself as the Messiah, as he performed miracles 
and as he ministered among the people. But then in Luke chapter 9 verse 51, there's a turn in the gospel and a turn in the story of Jesus. It comes down to the last six months of Jesus' life. It's six months before the cross and it says that he turned his face to go to Jerusalem. He recognized the time was short. His time of his departure and he, when, in which he would ascend back to the Father was coming, coming close. And so he begins to go towards Jerusalem. And so from Luke chapter 9 verse 51 through 19 through verse 44, Jesus is going towards Jerusalem deliberately and intentionally knowing that what's a, what awaits him. That journey ends with his triumphal entry into the city as he declares himself to be the Messiah and many people sing his praises. But then in chapter 19 verse 45 begins is the beginning of the end. Jesus begins his confrontation with the religious leaders and that confrontation leads to his betrayal, his death and finally his resurrection and ascension where the book of Luke ends. Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 20 and we are squarely in the middle of the confrontation that Jesus has with those religious leaders. He's in deep controversy. Now this controversy has been building for some time but it really comes to a climax in these final days of Jesus' life. As I noted, he rode into Jerusalem on a regal colt to the cries of people singing the messianic 118th psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Messianic hope was high. And it seemed that the people believed that he was the one. He then entered the temple the following day on Monday and he cleansed it. He he cleared out those who were buying, those who were selling. He put a stop to the wicked extortion scheme being operated there. Mark, the Gospel of Mark tells us that he allowed no one to pass through that, the temple precincts. He was in total control. And so Monday, the days of Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, of Jesus' final week upon this earth, were days of intense confrontation. He would retire to Bethany, each night going crossing uh, the Kidron Valley going up the Mount of Olives to the east and then going just over the backside of the Mount of Olives to the little village of Bethany where his friends Mary Martha and Lazarus lived but he would return each day to spar with his opponents and he stood there in the temple he held the attraction of the people and as the people flocked to him to hear him the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders they hated seeing this in fact, John chapter 19, they, they throw their hands up and they say, the whole world is going out to him. They, they, they feel like they're losing. Their grip on the people was loosening. And so they tried to stop him. And, and Luke chapter 20 really records this barrage of attacks that they seek to bring against Jesus. They try to stop him at every turn. And so from, again, from verse 1 of chapter 20, the religious leaders and Jesus have been going back and forth. There's been a war of words. They've been trying to trap him so that they could show to the people around that he really wasn't who he claimed to be, that they were the ones who were the authoritative teachers. And yet, at each turn, they strike and he blocks and defends and in 
In fact, he shows that he is the master. He's the one in control and he can't be confounded by their tricks and traps. Jesus knows that here in this final week of his life, he is making one last plea with the people, one last presentation before the nation saying, listen, Israel, I am your Messiah. Can't you see it? But he knows that each and every person has got to decide for themselves. They have to trust that Jesus is indeed the Lord. They can't just follow him in his popularity. They can't just like him. They can't just be wowed by him. They have to renounce everything, take up their cross daily and follow him. The calling was high. They couldn't have their foot on both sides of the line. They couldn't continue to live how they wanted to and yet add in a little messianic fervor on the side. They needed to completely change their lives, turn the other direction, repent from how they were living and follow after him. And so he required that they make a complete break with the system of the religious leaders. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus continuing this confrontation. And there's two exchanges that we're going to see here. And in these exchanges, Jesus is expositing the scriptures. There's been some opinions going back and forth about where does your authority come from? What should we do here and there? But in these passages, there are specific texts of scripture that are going to come forward. And Jesus is going to show himself to be the authoritative teacher of the Bible, not the religious leaders. It's going to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed God's spokesman. So I invite you to turn to, in your personal copy of God's Word, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and we'll be reading this morning verses 27 through 44. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, you can tap there on your phone or you can uh, turn there in the Pew Bible in front of you to page 1046 and you can follow along with us this morning. So follow along as I read, starting in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a re resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In this passage, we see Jesus silencing his critics. And as he does so, we're going to look at two demonstrations of his superiority as the authoritative teacher of the Bible. And friends, we need to see this today. We need to see Jesus teaching the Bible with authority and particularly the topics that he hits on here so that we would follow him and that we'd walk in the truth in which he teaches. We need to hear what Jesus has to say to us. Now today we only have time to look at the first demonstration. What I intended to fit all into one message had to go into two. So I apologize, but uh, we will get the richness of this passage either way. And so let's look first of all, the first demonstration of Jesus' superiority as a teacher of the Bible when he taught on, number one, the reality of the resurrection. When he taught on the reality of the resurrection. And we see this in verses 27 through 40. 27 through 40. We need to hear Jesus' teaching about the resurrection and what awaits us in the future. You know, there used to be a time in which people in our society had a general understanding about what came after death, that there was two destinations, heaven or hell. This was part of the Judeo-Christian uh, background and history of our nation, but we live in a skeptical age. We live in a secular age, rising secularism, in which these spiritual realities, these things that find their source in the scriptures are no longer uh, believed, are oftentimes doubted by many. In fact, I read a statement recently by none other than the great theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek, but he, uh, he gave a statement. I just happened to come across this. He made a statement about heaven. And, you know, I don't, I don't say this because, well, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is just, I say this as, as an example of people in our society and views about heaven. But he said this, he says, we don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. He says that death is a topic he's uncomfortable with. And he shared that heaven in his mind is a fantasy. He says, quote, when people talk about, I will see them again in heaven, it sounds so good. But the reality is we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. This is what happens when there is no understanding, there's no truth about what takes place after death. When we become unmoored from the word of God, we set off into this world of skepticism and ultimately into a world of sadness in which we have no clue of what is coming. And yet the scriptures are clear and this passage helps us open the door a little bit to, for us to be reminded this morning of what uh, Jesus taught about heaven and about the resurrection. So far in Luke, we have been introduced to uh, several different religious teachers. We've seen Pharisees, we've seen scribes, we've seen chief priests. 
But here in verse 27, we meet for the first time the Sadducees. The Sadducees. This is the only place where they're mentioned in Luke's gospel. Luke uh, does mention them in his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles. But here in Luke, this is the only place. And they are spoken of in uh, the New Testament. They're also spoken of in the works of the first century historian Josephus. But none of their own writings have survived. We know that they were a sect of Judaism. And they were found primarily among the priests there in Jerusalem. They were considered part of the religious aristocracy, having great wealth, power, and influence. And they primarily operated around the temple. They operated and controlled the temple. And so you can imagine how these Sadducees who controlled the temple were part of the chief priests, how they felt when Jesus walked into their uh, house, as it were, and cleaned house. They were not very happy. And so where the Pharisees have been dealing with Jesus for three years out in Galilee and they're all charged up, the Sadducees are like, listen, it's not that big a deal. And then he, Jesus walks in and starts messing with them and they go, okay, we're with you on this one. And so then they join in the games here as well. Now the Sadducees were also known for certain doctrines that they held to that were different from others in their day. In our passage, uh, we're told that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied that there would be a future resurrection of the saints. This doctrinal truth uh, about the resurrection was held by the Pharisees, but the Sadducees didn't teach that. But this wasn't the only aberrant or odd teaching that they had. In fact, Acts 23 verse 8 tells us this. It says, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So there's a sense in which they were materialists. They didn't believe in spirits. They believed that once you died, you ended, which is known today as annihilationism. That once people die, they're just annihilated. They cease to exist. These Sadducees also seem to have only viewed the first five books of the Bible, that is the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, as authoritative. And they looked with suspicion on the prophets and the writings. Again, Luke here brings in the, the important piece of detail. You can consider, you can think about his book, Luke's Gospel, spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And most people probably don't know what, who the Sadducees were or what they taught. But he needed to bring forward this one, this one point, And that is that they deny the resurrection. And that sets up this whole exchange. They believe there was no afterlife. People simply ceased to exist. And let me say, this is prevalent for us today as well. Because there are those today, even in the Christian church, who, who end up teaching this sort of doctrine. That, that, and particularly, they, they, they will teach it on the side of judgment that, that those who, are, who do not repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, that they will not be judged in hell, but they will simply be annihilated. They will simply cease to exist. And while I don't believe the Bible teaches that, and we'll look at that in a little bit, I can understand where their heart is coming from. There seems to be a, they're often driven by a sympathy that says it's too hard to bear to think about punishment in eternity forever. And so they try to soften it with a teaching in which people just cease to exist. But the Bible does not give us room for such teachings. 
And so because the Sadducees here didn't believe in the resurrection and they thought it was ridiculous, they thought that they could set up a trap where, in which Jesus could be tripped up. But here we see Jesus easily evade the snare and turn it into a teaching opportunity. So let's look first here in his, the reality of the resurrection that he taught on. Let's first look at the trap in verses 28 through 33, the trap. Here in verse 28, it says, They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. And he goes on to give a scenario. They go on to give a scenario. They, talk, they call him teacher. There's a sign of respect. And they believe the resurrection was ridiculous, a ridiculous improbability. And so this seems to be probably their go-to argument. I wouldn't be surprised if this is what they bring up in their squabbles with the Pharisees and they go, oh, we stump the Pharisees every time on this one. Let's bring it to Jesus. And so after Jesus has shut down the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, the Sadducees thought they could bring out their home run and crush it. The scenario involves around a law that you probably haven't spent a ton of time thinking about. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 and it's illustrated also in Genesis chapter 38. It's a law which later became known as leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Leveret comes from the Latin levir, which means a husband's brother, so a brother-in-law. And the essence of the law was this, as, as they describe here, that if a, a married man died, then his brother was obligated to marry his brother's widow and to have children through her. Those children, as a result of their union, would belong to the deceased brother. Maybe you've seen or heard of the old film, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This is one bride for seven brothers. As uh, the Sadducees set it up here, that they take that law and they then try to play out this reality. All right, so Moses wrote that the, the brothers were supposed to marry the widow. Okay, so let's play that out. Seven brothers and all of them die and all of them have this woman as a wife, which theoretically could have happened the odds of it actually this being a real scenario is very slim but let's just play it out it could happen I guess if they all are very unfortunate have very early deaths um, I wonder why the lady would wonder why she's marrying another one of these brothers but um, it's possible and this custom of leveret marriage sounds strange to our modern ears no doubt but we need to understand that the purpose for this, that why did God give this to Israel? Well, it was multifaceted. First of all, obviously, it preserved offspring for the, for the deceased man. It enabled him to have his name continued because it, it, uh, his name would be blotted out in Israel, and yet this allowed for his name to continue on. But also tied to the names and tied to the people was the land and the property. And so it enabled that land and that property to stay within the tribe, to stay within these, these tribes that God had given them. He allotted land to them, remember, as a gift. And so rather than uh, this, this uh, land going and the offspring then going to another tribe, it stayed within that tribe by marrying a brother. But it also helped to provide care for the widows. This these ladies that then would, would die, it enabled them to, to be able to remarry and for their needs to be cared for as well. 
And so there were some specific needs, particularly within ancient Israel, for the reasons why God set up leveret, this law of leveret marriage. So again, the Sadducees go, okay, we're going to believe Moses. Let's play this out and give you this hypothetical. But then they set up this hypothetical in order to make their point. They say, okay, let's say all that happened. Now in the resurrection, you look at it in verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Certainly, the assumption is this woman can't be married to seven men. They can't all be resurrected and she can't suddenly have seven husbands. So they think. And you can imagine them smirking a little bit. All right, Jesus, we're setting you up. Seven, seven, seven men, they die. This woman. Okay, now get this. Whose wife is, uh, is she? But Jesus turns the table. And so we see this. This brings us from the trap that the Sadducees set to now the teaching. Let's look at Jesus' teaching. How, what does he do with this? How does he respond to this supposed trap? Well, it's interesting. They called him teacher back in verse uh, 28 or uh, 28. And uh, he now fills that role and he says, basically, all right, sit down, let me teach you. They had missed some fundamental truths and he patiently straightens them out. Now, the, the main problem, the main deficiency in the Sadducees' teaching and their scenario, the main problem is this. They assumed that things in the the future age would be identical to the way that they are now in this age. They thought that just as things carry on here, so resurrection happens and everything's going to carry on just as it did in this life. Again, they rejected the resurrection, but what they rejected, as we'll find out, was not even true. In other words, they assumed too much continuity between this life and the next. And Jesus then, in his answer that we'll see here. He essentially tells them, listen, you guys know nothing about the resurrection. You're claiming to not believe this. You're claiming to make, uh, make fun of it. And yet you don't even know what you're talking about. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, he quotes Jesus as saying this. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You are flat out wrong. And so Jesus goes to correct these false teachers. In his teaching to these Sadducees now about why they're wrong about the resurrection, I want us to, to take this teaching that he gives us and to pull out for ourselves this morning to glean eight truths about life in heaven, about our future life in the eternal state. There are some great facts that Jesus presents here. And so as we look through Jesus' teaching here in his response to the Sadducees, there's going to be eight things that we're going to be able to glean from this to teach our own hearts and our own lives about what life in heaven is. Because again, we need to know the truth about heaven. We need to know the truth about what awaits us because we can't have hope in what we don't know. So let's look at the first truth for us this morning that this path that Jesus' teaching reveals for us, and that is there is a future age. The first thing that we can glean about, about heaven is that there is a future age. This is foundational to Jesus' argument. He doesn't discount that. He says in verse 34, he says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
he affirms here that indeed there is a future age. So, so Sadducees, let's just put that to rest. Um, yes, there is life after this one. Uh, there is a future age. There is something else that is coming. And so even in this statement here, he discredits this teaching of annihilationism. He says, no, people don't cease to exist. There is an age to come. And this is important for us to remember as well. What we see here is not all that exists. No doubt you've heard the statement by secular humanist Carl Sagan who, who said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. The worldview of a materialist that says everything that is here, the cosmos, the world, all that we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands, that's all that ever was, all that is, and all that ever will be. And Jesus here says, no, there's going to be an age to come. Because God is the one who was and is and is to come. God is the one who is eternal. He's the one who inhabits eternity. And it, he is the foundational basis for all existence. He created all things. As we were reminded last week of Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he determined that there will be a future that is different than what we see today. The future age, this future age, what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. It's an age which is ushered in with the return of Christ. It will begin with the 1,000-year kingdom of Christ, which will then be given to the Father and will be turned into the eternal state that will go on forever. And so when we talk about being in heaven, we can sometimes, uh, I'd say, be a little bit sloppy in our language. We can talk about being in heaven. If we die today, we'll be in heaven, which is true. But then the heaven that we'll be in for all of eternity is different. It'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we talk about heaven for all of eternity, it's the new heavens and the new earth. We won't be floating around in the clouds with white robes and harps. We will exist on a renewed earth in which sin, death, and suffering will be no more. But most importantly, friends, we will be in the presence of God Almighty. We will be able to dwell with the Lord. And his presence, his glory will be our light. But that future new heavens and new earth in which the glory of God dwells is not the fate of everyone. In other words, every single human upon this planet won't suddenly end up in that glorious place. And Jesus makes that clear even in his statements here. Look at verse 35. He says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And this brings us to the second truth that we can glean about eternity. And that is, you must be considered worthy to enter. You must be considered worthy to enter that future glorious age. By him saying that those who are considered worthy, he's implicitly saying that there are some who are worthy and there's some who aren't. Now, the Bible is clear that no one on their own merits will be able to be worthy of eternal life. In other words, there's going to be nobody who arrives at the gates of heaven and gets a gold star because they did all the right moral things to deserve to be there. The Bible's clear that we all have sinned, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Even the nicest person, that sweet old lady that lives next to you, 
even that innocent child in your home. We all are guilty before the bar of God's justice. We've all fallen short and because of that, every single one of us deserves death and wrath from the hand of God our creator. Why is that? It's because he's holy and his eyes can't look upon evil. He can't dwell with wickedness. And so one act of rebellion in us commits us, condemns us. But the good news of the gospel is that God did not leave it that way. For him and his holiness to remain in one place and for all of doomed humanity to go and, and be sentenced to hell forever. But instead, he devised a plan, a glorious plan, by which he would give of himself so that we might be able to partake in his glory, so that we might be able to dwell with him. He wanted us to come and be a part of his glorious plan. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and walk upon this earth that the gospels, even the gospel of Luke, as we've been studying, records that he came and walked upon this earth, lived the perfect life, never sinning in word, thought, or deed, and therefore went to the cross and was able to bear the iniquity of our sin upon him. And there he was slain on behalf of sinners. And so that all who place their faith in Jesus, all who look to him in his death, burial, and resurrection and trust in what he has done to pay the price to get us into heaven, that is the ticket. It is not through our religious efforts that will get us to heaven, friends. It's not our good works. It's not as if we have climbed the great religious mountain and we happen to make it to the rarefied air of the top. Salvation is only ever a gift, a sovereign gift of God. It's his grace of a generous God. And so how are we worthy to attain eternal life? How are we to fall in the category of what Jesus says here to be considered worthy to attain that? It's not because of your goodness. It's not because of mine. It's not because of our righteousness. Friends, it is only through Jesus Christ. It's only by repenting of our rebellion, of us trying to do things our own way and instead trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And it's in that that we are saved and that we are counted worthy. Church, this should be a cause of deep humility and worship, right? That this is the work that Christ has done in us that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that Jesus has gone to the cross on our behalf so that we might have a future and a hope. It's not because of us. We're not worthy because of us. We're worthy only because of him. But folks, this is also a sober warning to all those who have yet to repent in Christ, those who are walking in their own way, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you have not confessed him as Lord and repented of your sins, then you right now are not counted worthy to attain to that future age, to what we know as heaven. But rather the Bible says the wrath of God remains upon you. But as I've said this morning, there is hope and there is grace and there is, there is life offered to you this morning if you would but repent and look to Jesus. So the second truth is that you must be considered worthy to enter this eternal life, this eternal state. 
But there's a third truth for us to consider about the eternal state. And that is you will enter through resurrection. You will enter through resurrection. Jesus here says that the Christians will attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says that those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and, verse 35, to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he totally and completely affirms the resurrection of the saints. And so that means that you and I are waiting for a resurrection that will usher us into that future age. Now I think for most of us, when we think about our hope of heaven, when we think about where our hope lies, we tend to be a little short-sighted. We look to only when our labors in this life are through, when this life ends and we are ushered into the presence of the Lord. And indeed, that is the case. We do go to heaven when we die. We are present with the Lord, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and we long for that. But friends, note this. That is not our final destination. That is not where our eternity will be spent. The heaven that we go to now is a temporary place where we wait. Where we wait for our final resurrection. We are waiting to be resurrected and to walk upon this earth only renewed. A new heavens, a new earth in physical bodies and in fact you know resurrection actually awaits everybody not just the saved and I want you to see this and turn to the right to the book of John chapter 5 John chapter 5 verses 25 uh, beginning in verse 25 Jesus says this, John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, there's a resurrection awaiting everybody. Everyone's going to be resurrected one day, either to a body that's going to enjoy life in God's presence forever or to a body that will endure God's wrath forever. But it's not until we get to Revelation chapter 20 that we learn that these two resurrections are actually going to be separated by a thousand years. And so turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, and we'll see these two resurrections, the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto judgment delineated in terms of timing. We'll pick up in verse 4, Revelation 20, verse 4. John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection takes place at the beginning of the kingdom of God. And this is a resurrection that Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 14, verse 14, where he called it the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the righteous. And this is the resurrection that we as the church await for. Paul reveals that it will take place for us at the rapture when he will descend with the trumpet shout and we will meet the Lord in the air and we will be changed. The dead in Christ will rise first. And it's on that day that we will be given new glorified bodies. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 through 21 says that we await a savior who will transform these lowly bodies to be like his body. And so we see that by this simple fact that Jesus mentions back in Luke 20, this resurrection, this future age and the resurrection from the dead, that we are informed that the entrance into that future age is through resurrection. It's a physical age and we need physical bodies to indwell it. And our resurrection is when that will happen. Let's look at one more this morning of our eight truths for, uh, that we can glean from this passage. Look at number four. The fourth truth that we can glean from Jesus' teaching here to the Sadducees about the eternal state, and that is marriage will not exist in the eternal state. Marriage will not exist in the eternal state. This is the point that Jesus needs to answer, right? The question came to him was about marriage. He needs to say something about marriage. And indeed he does. He says, verse 34, that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay, yes, we marry uh, in this life, in this age. But to those who are considered worthy to attain to the, that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus acknowledges that marriage happens now, but he makes it very clear that marriage does not continue into the next age. He says that redeemed people in the new heavens and the new earth will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In other words, marriage is something that will die with this age. It will pass away. It will not carry into the next. Now there are others who teach contrary to the scriptures, such as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons who teach in perpetual marriage, eternal marriage, but that goes directly against what Jesus teaches here. In one sense, <laughs> they are the ones that the Sadducees should be presenting this question to. If you believe in eternal marriage, then what's happening with these, this lady and these seven brothers? Now, for Christians today, and I don't know if this, how this truth hits you today, 
or as you've thought about this in the past, but this truth that marriage will not exist in heaven and in the eternal state sometimes can be hard to accept. That there's not going to be marriage in heaven. Our marriage is such a sweet gift that God has given to us here upon this earth. We, through the Lord's providence, he gives us someone to have and to hold, someone to love and to cherish. And that relationship is unlike any thing else in our lives. And yet, the Lord says that we are not going to be married in heaven. And we trust that and we need to rest in that. But the reality is, is how do we spend eternity with our spouse? It's by trusting in Jesus together, right? It's by, by being united to the Savior. It's by being one of those who are counted worthy and together we will be ushered into the presence of the Lord and to live in the new heavens and the new earth. And so by God's grace, we will both be there. We just won't spend it as a married couple. But church, for those of you that this is unsettling, I encourage you to be comforted by the words of Psalm 84, verse 11. It says this, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Friends, God will not, I repeat, God will not give us less in that future day. God has promised far more. Whatever joys that we have here, they will be a hundredfold there. And so you can take this to the bank, that God will not shortchange you. That God will, his plan is to bless us abundantly far more than we could ever imagine. Whatever joy we think we would have by staying married in heaven, God says, I'm going to blow your mind with what I have in store for you. He will bless us beyond what we can imagine. And so we need to trust his providence. We need to trust his promises and we need to trust his plan. He knows what he is doing and there is no good thing that he is seeking to withhold from us. And so we can trust him even to know that what we will receive in that future age will be far greater than what we could ever experience here upon this earth. He is not going to hold back from us, is he? He wants to bless us abundantly and we can look forward with hope to that. And so with that, we will come back next week to look at the remaining four uh, truths that we can glean about the eternal state, about heaven, and then go on to look at his, the second demonstration of Jesus as the authoritative Bible teacher. And with that, I ask you would please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the reminder that there is indeed a future age, that this is not all there is. And yet, Father, we're reminded that not everyone will be ushered into those, that new heavens and new earth. And so I pray, Father, for those who are here this morning, that you would help each one of us to take stock of our own soul, to examine ourselves, to see that we are in the faith, that we might know for certain where we will spend eternity. Father, may you help each one of us 
to afresh renounce all righteousness in our own name. That we have no goodness by which we are saved. We simply only rest upon Jesus. And I pray that his sacrifice, his love, and his salvation might be upon our hearts this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.